Hi and welcome to This is Freya and Charlie and we're back after what have been a bit of a while. Yeah. Uh, today we will introduce the first part of um, what will be a series of conversations in which we continue a focus which actually in the past was probably already established but never really vocalized in which we invite and talk to peers and organizations, platforms around the world with a specific interest in how people make it happen in other places. Yeah, and with the kind of idea of, or the implication that it's difficult to make creative things happen mm -hmm. uh, in increasingly in, in, in the world in general, right? There's not really many places where um artists are sort of like living a comfortable life um mm -hmm. and creatives are living a comfortable life and you know there's increasing but like not enough conversation about the fact that people do sustain their practices by doing other things and i think it's important to sort of talk about that and talk about money and that kind of thing yeah and also how this reflects um a relevance of locality of sustainability but also drives and different motivations Uh, so first off, we had a conversation with Payam from Slaps and Tatars, which uh, very quickly dives into these different topics that we've already mentioned and interest in. Yeah, and I think it's probably nice to sort of like begin, I think with something that captured both of us, this like idea of the organic development of the um, of the platform or of, of the, uh, what are they, a project, an organization or... Yeah, because what's interesting with Slaps and Tatars is that it, it started as being a book club mm -hmm. and that parts of that, the nature of the book club has remained. So, for instance, I find it impressive with Slaps and Tatars how they've managed to stay or keep an identity as a collective and not so much the individual authorship. Yeah, I've been saying as well lately to sort of anyone who listened that it's you know if you're kind of like starting out with something it's sort of start a book club is a good way of basically just beginning that that moment of coming together of various people and sort of establishing the ideas that you want to work with which builds on this other point which you know we're generally interested in about kind of sustainability right is that like if you have from the start a sense of like coherency and and um direction that that kind of fulfills itself in a way. If people know what you are offering and people know what you're about, and also if you know what you're about, like you can kind of direct your energy like with a particular focus, you know? Yeah, but it's know. interesting though, because I think uh, we're addressing sustainability also because it's um, there's such a lack of sustainability, whereas I often speaking about it, might make it sound easier than what it is. And for instance, Pam does mention that for the first seven years of Slaps and Tatars, he was having another work, another main profession to make it financially run around. And 
another point that also stuck with me is that Slavs and Tatars as a collective, the way in which they would work with a commission would be not only to produce an artwork, but also to think about the texts and the communication and like really to to deliver um, a, a huge product. And so, of course, like an institution would almost get more for the money hiring yeah. Slavs and Tatars. And it's, um, but that, I mean, they're also probably expending less energy <clears throat> producing you know, it's sort of like squeezing more out of what they actually produce, right? You know, not trying to do too many things, I suppose. Yeah. So uh, a bit of a link maybe to mention that they have also contributed with a wall work to the building of Anfara. And um, this is not going to be the case for all of our future set-at-set conversations. But in this, this special occasion... We released this talk also in combination with uh, a work uh, produced to Lawrence Wiener's theories of Fanfara, in which each contribution is coming from a different collective and will be shared in a different way and communicated in a different way. So the project in itself is kind of um, very much welcoming uh, the Slavs and Tatars approach of being very aware of um all means of a project being part of the project so mm-hmm. communication and text not being secondary but primary yeah nice um should we without further ado roll the conversation yeah I say let's roll the conversation <laughs> so when looking through like lectures and articles on your work there's repeatedly this um, mentioning of how Slavs and Tatars started as a book club back in 2006 if I'm right Um, and we were talking about and would be curious if you could maybe speak a bit about how you made this transition from it being a book club to becoming more than a book club because yeah, becoming a more complex organization, basically. Mm-hmm. How did how did that happen? Well, it it happened uh, it happened relatively organically and not in a, any kind of conscious way. Uh, we're quite strategic in the way we think about work, but not in terms of how we plan forward. More strategic about how we're dealing with what's in front of us. So let's say subject matter, content wise, but let's say we're not strategic about strategy, if that makes any sense. And so. When we started, to be perfectly honest, we were both quite well-adjusted individuals, happy with our kind of careers outside of the art world, and and and, uh, and aimed to essentially publish a couple books a year on topics which we found of interest regarding our regional remit. And that, of course, we couldn't get straight to that, so we started off with sort of you know eight, ten-page, very uh, more modest pamphlet-type uh, publishing, in addition to fifty to hundred. And really passed them around informally. It was really an informal book club in that sense. What I mean, what I, I think, uh, as I always say, right? They say that uh, hindsight is is twenty twenty vision. So I think if I look back, I can see that one thing that we've maintained from this book club idea is the fact that there's not a hierarchy in a book club. Meaning, we have to this day something I'm, I'm quite proud of is that we have a, a substantial following. Our publics, they're not your art centric publics. Meaning. 
Now, whether that means outside of the discipline of art, whether that means designers or journalists, or whether that means also in an identity, identitarian sense, uh, meaning not your European middle-class educated folks, right? Like, so I know that because I just, I, I mean, I, I could sense it, but then it, it recently it's become more and more pronounced in the sense that institutions have, have been more explicit in, in why they invite us. I, I always sort of suspected it, but I can now, they just now just say it that, we would like to bring into the fold of our institution people that normally are not targeted by art. Uh, and that, of course, sometimes means Russian-speaking uh, communities, Turkish-speaking communities, uh, Muslim uh, communities, etc. But so to come back to the book club, what's uh, the red thread of that book club in some sense is the, is the fact that one of the reasons I think that these non-art professional uh, audiences feel comfortable dealing with the work is that there isn't this pedagogical hierarchy in a sense that a lot of art that is that has discourse or that is a lot of creative work that has a kind of a discursive element or that is considered to be political, let's say, usually speaks from a position of authority. And the, so the dynamic with the audience is really, we have something to tell you. And, and we've never really worked like that. Not in the sense that, again, it's not been calculated. It's just not the way we are as people. And also, if you look in the name or the regional remit that we have, it's, it's almost in the very DNA of Slavs and Tatars is this defeatism or this inability to be specialist, right? Because the region is just too vast. I mean, that's, that's very, that was very calculated. To how can we choose a region which almost sounds absurd in its, in its scale, right? Between the former Berlin Wall and the Great Wall of China, that's basically half the world and 300 ethnicities and I don't know how many nations. So you cannot be a specialist of that region. You can't, I mean, just nobody would pretend no, uh, <laughs> uh, to have that kind of knowledge. So this, this sense of, uh, again, like a book club of really sharing a line of investigation with the publics, I think that has something I hope we've maintained, despite the fact that, yes, it has become much more complex. You know, if, if the first two or three years was print-based, uh, the last 10-odd year, eight, eight, nine years has proliferated into all kinds of things from installations to sculptures to sound works uh, with, of course, a consistent uh, emphasis on print and reading still. Yeah, I mean, this is also very reflected when... I mean, when entering, like the first impression you get when entering your website, you have these like five different categories ranging from the pickle bar to printed matter lectures and um, and also different research topics. To what extent does that reflect your like your structural organization when you work like within Slavs and Tatars? So, um, I mean, before I uh, answer, actually, I just finished the the one thing about why we because i didn't answer your question why also to go into these other media why not just remain i mean it's something that come often is it's criticism sometimes people make as well very much an art world critic a kind of art centric criticism is why make objects right if you're so interested in print so interested in books why did you transition into other media and because there's a kind of healthy suspicion of creating more stuff in the world right or why lectures even and why anything but print and i think uh one of the things is that let's say the, the kind of the, the intellectual foundations of Slavs and others, again, retrospectively defined, it wasn't planned this way, but I can sort of see it now. And with, with hindsight is that, is this idea of you know, trying to draft or conceive or explore other forms of knowledge that are not analytical. So if you want to allow a space for knowledge, which is not analytical, so meaning it can be affective knowledge, it can be phenomenological knowledge, it can be metaphysical knowledge, it can be emotional knowledge, then, then sadly print, is quite limited in that sense, right? Because for me, print is really the domain of discourse, words, text, articulation. And with other things, other media, 
installations. You can have a spatial, again, a kind of phenomenological relationship with, with you can have an aff- affective relationship with, with the material that sadly you can't really have with print. I mean, there's nothing sad about it, I should say. Print does a lot of things. It, does, it can't do everything, right? But uh, So that's, the kind of, that's why we went into these other media. Now, what you, Freya, mentioned, uh, the question, to your question of the different platforms... Pickle Bar, the residency, for example, now this recent as well, a couple of years old now is a that actually is a quite recent phenomenon, and that's uh, and that really does have to do with hierarchy in a, in, a, in a larger sense. That started in 2017 or so, essentially 16, 17, when we kind of we did a retrospective, uh, not a mid-career uh, survey in a sense, and we wanted to understand sort of what we had done in the past ten years and how we would move forward in the next ten years, and it was a kind of a self-imposed midlife crisis in, in the sense that. Because Slavs and Tatos was really created or founded in response to a particular world in 2006, it, we felt it was important to take stock of that changes, incredible changes that none of us had foreseen. And, and one of the things that we, of course, these initiatives like the pickle bar, the residency, the curating, really came out of a need to reclaim Slavs and Tatars as a platform and not as an art collective. And what I mean by that is there's a kind of inertia, because we live in the times where art happens to be the zeitgeist, there's an inertia for people to obsess about this, your subjectivity, no matter, even if you have an anonymous collective, people want to know who you are, where you studied, and also they want you present. Like, I want you to come to a site visit. I want you to conceive of a new work. It's all about this kind of authorship, which a collective is actually, in some ways, I hope, aims to undo, right? It's not about you. It's about a collective work, and it's about the work. It doesn't matter who did it. So we thought, we, how can we reclaim that space as, as a platform? Meaning, like, if we're interested in a series of uh, concerns be it language politics, be it syncretism and faith-based practices, whatever, why do we need to do the research? Why do we need to write the article? Why do we need to design? Why can't we, why can't we be sometimes the kind of the MC and be like, look, give the, just also share the spotlight or the share of the platform with others? And this came out of, a, again, a kind of a, an intellectual need, but also a, a logistic sense that we, were, we had gotten to a point where we were receiving too many commissions and we had too many resources that we weren't, to be able to accommodate them all ourselves. Meaning, I understand that's a very privileged position, but you can do several things with that. You can either say, okay, I'm going to make bigger pieces and just more expensive manufacturing or more expensive production, get a bigger studio, or you can somehow kind of shift it to others. And that's what we're trying to do is to say, okay, let's share some of this knowledge that we've accumulated in a kind of mentorship program we have for people from our region where there's no good art schools and no good design schools. And uh, let's curate sometimes so that we can also explore the same ideas, but not through our artwork all the time, through other people's artwork, uh, sort of midwife these things. And the Pickle Bar as well is a, is a kind of project space that will be launched soon, we'll, which is kind of, we want to explore hospitality, but why should we fill the content? You know, why should we always do the performance lectures? Why can't we invite others to, to think of these things? You know, it's a, it's, it's a hierarchy in a sense of like a hierarchy of the artist versus the world, you know? <laughs> we want to kind of balance that out again and not have it be so much the kind of people looking to us to kind of provide things as a service provider. Yeah. Now, actually, I mean, um, speaking of platform, platforming or whatever you call it, is something that's quite an interest of ours as well. FinFast named themselves or ourselves as a platform for years. Also in moments of not really being capable exactly of defining what exactly was meant with that notion. Um, except from also realizing that it allowed us to embrace various different activities and collaborations. When coming by um, 
this formulation on your website, also naming yourself as a platform, it did make us wonder if there's if there's a considered reasoning behind choosing to call yourself a platform. And um, if perhaps you could speak a bit about how you consider that notion in the context of what you're doing. I think, I haven't ever thought about it as a terminology, to be honest, of the platform itself. But uh, one thing that comes to mind immediately is, uh, again, this idea that a platform is, is, is in some sense serving something, right? That it's, it's, it's not autonomous in any sense. And I've, we've been very kind of vocal about that, that we, we're happy for our work to be instrumentalized, as long as it's instrumentalized to correct in the correct ways, you know? Um, and that in, in some sense, we are service providers. Again, it's a kind of a hierarchy. Art seems to have this kind of, because it, when it claims for this autonomy, it, it, it puts itself in a position of, of, of exclusivity that, that we've never felt comfortable with, that somehow the artist is removed from this process of whether it's, whether it's logistical stuff, financial stuff, all this kind of daily mundane stuff that we have to deal with, that um, we're very happy to just acknowledge it and, and, and use it and sort of leverage it further for uh, our ends in that sense. And, and, and I guess that's why we call it a platform, because even the work itself is, is really, we always aim, I mean, for us, the aim is for the artwork to never become an end in and of itself. That it really has to, even like the books always are kind of tentacular and leading to elsewhere and the, note, and the footnotes lead you somewhere else as opposed, to, as opposed to buttressing the argument. The artworks also shouldn't be these kind of hmm, echo chambers or they shouldn't be this kind of genealogical endpoint that sometimes art can be and it's sometimes great art is, is that. But for us, it's, that's just not the kind of work we do. So it should be kind of a step towards something else towards a further investigation or a further set of questions or reclaiming it as a kind of, again, as a, a larger discourse of like reclaiming art's proportionate role in society, really, right? Even if it happens to be the zeitgeist this past 10 years or so, that means, first of all, that it's already on its way out, meaning that it should, it'll, it'll, it'll eventually occupy a normal position again, like it did 30, 40 years ago, like cinema went from the 70s to something huge to something normal, like fashion in the 90s from something crazy and important to something just normal, like a normal one, one media amongst others, you know? I, it got me thinking this notion of like you kind of offering yourselves up as a, as a conduit in a way, a, a way of kind of letting other ideas sort of flow through you and, and maybe sort of deconstructing the, the role you have in defining the parameters of what you do and that kind of thing. Um, and how this sort of links with the, the subject or the kind of principal key word, I guess, that we kept seeing in relation to your practice, uh, Eurasia, um, as a sort of location that almost by its nature represents a removal of, of a historic cultural conception of a border between two places which doesn't actually exist geographically, right? And um, I'd be interested to hear a bit more about this concept um, as you, as you, your group has, has developed it. Before I do get that answer, though, um, I, I just remembered that um, this uh, cultural theorist, Jace Clayton, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, um, talks about uh, the, the way that sounds don't ask for permission. And he talks about it in relation to borders, right? That sounds kind of travel through borders. And I saw... While I, I don't think you particularly work with sound as such, but a similar kind of resonance with some of the other projects you're working with, particularly food, but also religion. 
So maybe, yeah, I, it'd be interesting just to sort of uh, hear your thoughts on the importance of removing borders in your in your practice. Yeah, we actually con- uh, collaborated with Jason on a piece uh, for the Berlin Biennale. Uh, so he was a he he kind of conceded the sound element of the piece that we did. So um, this notion of Eurasia is at the same time implies a loss of borders or kind of a, this big brushstroke of, of a region. But it, what I like about it is and something I like about the, the term Tatars, which I'll refer to as well, as back, come back to, is that Eurasia is something which at, this, is at one and the same time completely pushes sort of outward and has this kind of, if you want to call it, kind of an exotic sort of aspiration in some sense, right? Sort of not us as Westerners, let's say, but at the same time, it is us, right? So I like this kind of, this tension of it being, of course, it includes Europe, and yet it doesn't somehow. You know, when you think of Eurasia, you don't think of Amsterdam, strangely, even though you should, right? Because it's, it's, it's in a kind of purely geographic sense. So this, I think it, it's this idea of a space which is equally geopolitical and sort of hard facts, let's say, cold wars, blah, 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 that doesn't really interest us, but it's there, so we can, we're, we're aware of it, um, and as, as well as imagined. And so this, this tension between an imagined and a very kind of real politics space is, is something that Again, it goes back to our name, and this is why I love the term Saz and Tatars. I mean, I, I think the best work that we've done is the name, because I think it's just such a ridiculous name. And it, it brings to, together these two things, which almost, like Eurasia itself, like Europe and Asia, they, they kind of make such sense together, and yet there's a tension between them, right? And this kind of, whether it's Slavic nationalism versus Islam, etc. But, but in the term Tatars itself, I mean, the Slavs is something that's understood. Tatars is what's much more interesting, because Tatars has a similar kind of speculative meaning that so basically any 19th century european explorer to the middle east or central asia whatever they use tatars as a kind of catch-all term for anybody who whose ethnicity they didn't understand who's brown so basically if you imagine like the 19th late 18th century explorers they knew who persians were turks were arabs and then they kind of a couple people like let's say the armenians they knew because of biblical traditions but everybody, all these other people, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, Dagestan, basically all these other people, they didn't know who they were. So they just called them all Tatars. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a fictive name. And yet, what I like about it is it, it, at the same time, it's a real name. There are real Tatars. And to complicate it even further, there's two kinds of Tatars that are, have nothing to do with each other ethnically or linguistically, but are both called Tatars in, in Russian and English. So like there's the Tatars in Kazan and sort of Tatarstan, and there's the Tatars about the Volga region. So it's a, it's a very complex word, Tatar. It has, again, it has this kind of fictional, uh, poetic imagination that you associate with Genghis Khan and sort of, you know, the Tatars were the descendants of the Mongols, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of the, the borders and the kind of the, the, what I think are the regional remit, it's the one thing that we... we to, I mean, to your point of like, yes, we're, we, are, we do allow, hopefully, a kind of a, a space for, of maneuvering and investigation, especially in the kind of certain initiatives that are beyond the artwork, meaning like all these things I just mentioned, the curating, the, it's not about controlling things, it's about letting these things develop in other people's practices. But one thing we're very strict about is the regional remit. Like we keep coming back to that, like when we're opening the pickle bar, we're having three performers over three days. It was very important for us to just to maintain in a very stupid sense that these people have to be from or about Eurasia. Now, again, that's it's, it's such a huge remit that it's, it doesn't limit you so much. But for us, it's important to maintain this kind of geographic focus because without it, we just become an art collective that does everything. You know, it's for me, it's like the, it's the only thing that holds this all together is this geographic remit. And, and particularly the idea of a kind of the, the way we treat this, this, this large region, of course, is 
is very much this idea of it being an in-between space. That so it's you know if you look in our work, we're never really focused on what I would call the major empires. Like so, we never really look at Russia. We never. I mean, there's there's so much work about Russian avant-garde, Soviet Union. It's just we feel that the, our job is to do what others don't do. So. What makes Eurasia interesting for us is all those, exactly all those peoples, those ethnicities that, that the 19th century explorers didn't have a name for. These are what's interesting for us because it's the kind of minor stories. It's the liminal spaces. It's the marginal ideologies that are in between that always interest us. So, you know, uh, the fact that our region is largely Muslim, but it's not the Middle East. You know, so it's, it's, it's kind of, everybody knows what's happening in the Middle East today. Everybody is bombarded with it. Ours is Muslim, but it's not the Middle East. Even that is kind of a weird thing. It's sort of, you know, what do you mean by Muslim and not Middle East? Most people think of the, the Muslim world as, you know, sort of ending in Iran and starting in sort of the Levant and Le- Lebanon or something. It's largely Russian-speaking, but it's not Russia. You know, it's just all these brown people who are speaking Russian, but they're not Russian. I mean, Kazakhs are not Russian. Kyrgyz are not Russian. Sort of Azeris are not Russian. So it's really this kind of very much a sort of sandwich space between these empires that have whole departments devoted to them and universities across the world. That's not what interests us. What interests us is the spaces that get that fall through the cracks of these university departments, these regional focuses, these kind of major nation states, let's say. You know? At the risk of sort of like overemphasizing this concept of the platform, you, I, I feel a little bit like the the very notion of Eurasia, but also the semantics of Slavs and Tatars. It acts as a platform in a way by elevating a wider space and and the source the less appreciated sort of um, constituent parts of that space, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, again, we've been taken to task for it because it's, it's tricky. We don't represent our region, of course. We're not going to have a tourist board for our region. But, uh, but at the same time, these kind of critiques have never been leveled by people from our region. They're always leveled by what I call the gatekeepers. There's a lot of gatekeepers in our region. And, and it's inevitable that we would step on some toes because there's gatekeepers of much more specific geographic regions within our region. And... We reach out and hope, hopefully kind of work with, but sometimes these specialists feel either threatened or almost offended that somebody would even take such a large, you know, I mean, they don't, I guess maybe some people just don't see the, the humor in it as well, right? The kind of the defeatism is very much there, this idea of, of like I said, it's, 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 you're destined to fail when you, do, when you take such a large swoop, you know? Yeah, so taking back the attention to like your specific practice to what extent do you experience that um the local working conditions to have an impact on the possibility of either strengthening or limiting local cultural initiatives and because i can imagine i mean you uh have a base with staff and tatars in berlin And I can imagine that there's a completely different working possibilities to work with there in comparison to some of the places where you are working. Mm. I mean, one of the things that's, uh, I think, f- f- quite has been quite important for us is, is the studio space that we have. Hopefully you'll visit sometime in, in person. In Berlin, is it's a ground floor retail space with large windows. And what's it's a kind of small gesture, but it's quite significant or quite symbolic in the sense that, as you might know, uh, Many people, creative individuals, use Berlin as a hub, but many of us are not involved in the fabric of our city because we use it as a kind of anonymous place to retreat to, to create, to sort of uh, detox, to sleep, to catch up, to, but not as a place that we engage with in the community itself. And usually because economically we go elsewhere, right? I mean, before the, the pandemic, it was, it was kind of, you would, you would live here, but you'd work elsewhere. And we didn't, this never 
sat well with us because um, despite living in many different countries, we've never been expats. I mean, I've never really, I've never been expat until 43 years old living in Berlin because in Russia, I had Russian friends. In France, I had French friends. In Iran, I had Iranian friends. I never understood the idea of kind of uh, international expatriate community. I just, I don't get it. If you want to hang out with certain people, you go to that place. And anyway, so this space that we chose counters that in the sense that you know, it's again, it's small gestures, but there's no, there's no blinds, there's no tinted windows. It's very exposed to the public and exposed to the street where we're working. And we've become very much immediately within the first three or four months, we become very, very implicated in the kind of micro neighborhood or community or street that we're working in. And that is coherent with the way we work is that our work is very public facing. We're very much aware of publics when we're not only, it's something that recently I've come across, I've understood is to what extent, you know, recently we've been asked by institutions, for example, to take our work to other communities that are disadvantaged, let's say outside of major cities, right? Like let's do a show with a, an institution in Moscow, but outside the center, city center in a kind of suburbs of Moscow or come and do something in the suburbs of Amsterdam or in the suburbs of Vienna. And we've had to push back against that. Not because, again, we don't believe that people who are marginal should, shouldn't be coming to uh, art institutions, but because we don't believe that it's our job to take the work to others. Meaning that it's a bit patronizing. Is that I believe the institution in the center of Amsterdam and the center of Moscow should be making itself welcome to those marginalized communities and not a kind of a, a takeaway version of it that you sort of take to communities, you know. And and I think that it's something that we're we're very much focused on is is the mediation of the work when we create artwork. And this is something that I, I I don't know many artists, at least not of our generation. I don't think in general who think so much about mediation in the conception of the artwork. Mediation is usually something that's considered afterwards, right? The education department or the text about the piece or how you communicate it or PR, etc. We, because our region is so remote, because, because we're very aware of the fact that nobody, to be honest, nobody gives a shit about the interest that we have. I'm aware of that totally, really. I mean, I, I know that. I'm not just saying that just to be sort of uh, disingenuous. I know that my interest in Uyghur language politics doesn't interest very many people in our world at all. And so it's our job to meet these people halfway. It's our job to kind of mediate that in a way that it does interest them. Now that might sound calculating or a kind of a, a not romantic sense of doing art, right? Uh, but that's something that um, even in Berlin, despite it being kind of linked to the former East in some sense, is, is something that we have to always argue for or make space for is that is creating a space that these publics, either culturally defined or ethnically defined publics that normally don't feel targeted by contemporary art. Um, one thing that I think that we do with our work, I mean, is, is we replace the kind of the, the privileged knowledge, um, how do you call it? So normally art, art uh, institutions, artworks, exhibitions, assume a certain accumulated knowledge of its public. For example, when you go see a Walter de Maria or a Carl Andre, there's an assumption that you know something about minimal art, the history of minimal art. And so we don't deal with art history in any sense. So what our work does in some sense is it assumes a completely different set of, of reference points. And so the engineer from Azerbaijan, he, he or she feels that they have the, the knowledge, the references to deal with the work, whereas the traditional European sort of Anglo-American, whatever you want to call it, white visitor who has read art history then actually feels a little bit out of their element, that these are not the normal uh, reference points that I have. So in that sense, that's the kind of communities that we're trying 
to again it's not a it's something that we planned that we never thought about this is, we want to do an art, art art collective for people who feel disenfranchised but that's i've seen that's that's how i explain the development of the practice i mentioned like i i think very strategically but more retroactively in a sense that i'm trying to understand why why a, a collective devoted to a particular set of concerns that is of no interest to the larger public developed within a very short time span went from very minimal budgets of 100 euros to larger budgets in major museums. Why did that happen? And I could, I could of course, just sort of say, oh, it's because the work is great or whatever. That's a kind of self-congratulatory. But I don't think that that's the case. I think that actually uh, there's larger socioeconomic political reasons for why these things happen. And, and, I, and one, of the reasons I, one of the ways I try to explain it is that it does happen to create other communities, essentially, or... or represent or speak to communities that normally are not spoken to did i answer your question at all or no yeah yeah i mean in fact you even touched upon the the next and last question yeah. as well i think which i i mean we, it comes full circle what we were originally talking about um literally the question of how do you make it happen maybe more specifically in what ways do you try and make decisions about what kind of work you go for and also if if you feel like you are independent and and if so how you maintain that independence which is also i think rooted in also i guess some continuous interest in addressing sustainability or the lack of sustainability as well in the cultural field because that's a conversation that um, more often at least could be out in the open well I think that I'll split it into kind of two different um, answers in the sense that I think intellectually for us, we make it happen by this kind of, you know, you might have come across maybe some of the lectures, this idea that we talk about this kind of metaphysical splits, right? This idea of combining two things which are not normally combined, like oil and water, let's say. And one example of this is that really in terms of how to make it happen is these really deep dives of research that we're, we do, and we're really lucky in the sense that we're able to do that. I was just, I mean, I sometimes have to pinch myself that and, and in terms of how grateful and, and blessed we are that, that essentially we can choose a, almost an infinite amount of topics and devote two or three years to that topic. And there are public institutions that are financing that investigation. So it's almost like a kind of continuous education, lifelong education in some sense. And I think that's, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I have to pinch myself because I'm like, I can't believe that actually is possible in the world, you know, that you could just sort of, that there's there's a space for that to exist. And I think that the mix of, let's say, these deep dive researches with very, very stupid questions or humor is something that enables us to, to make it happen, really, or to, to how we do what we do. Because, again, it's not calculated, but if I take a step back, that humor or that pop element, or I don't know, you can call it many things. It's kind of the colorfulness or whatever, the accessibility of the work, the kind of friendliness or the playfulness. All of this are, in essence, a kind of a cover for us to push further into more obscure things, meaning that the more pop or humorous or fun I make the work, the more space it gives me to go even more obscure in my interest. You know what I mean? Because it's a kind of tension, otherwise... You know, that's why if you're doing work about things that people already are interested in, protest movements, sexuality, then you can do it formally quite in, a diff, in, a, in, a, in an obscure manner because the subject matter itself is so present in people's minds. Our subject matter is so not present in people's minds that we have to kind of, I don't want to say sugarcoat it, but, it, it, but 
this kind of the, 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 the stupidity that we have to combine to the, to the kind of the, the research. I think that's uh, quite important. In, in terms of sustainability, we've maintained that, to be honest, is what you, I mean, I can only speak about it in a kind of financial sense, not an environmental sense, but in a kind of, it's very much why we started this residency also, is that I, I, I do think that, uh, again, I, I can only speak for our generation or our art, artists of our scale, we run a very, very tight ship, meaning that we're very, very uh, conscious of every last euro, how we spend it. And that's something that goes back to our roots, but it also makes sense, again, to our region, right? Like, we're, I mean, I, I joke sometimes that we're like the immigrants of the art world in the sense that, you know, early on for the budget that normally an artist would take and just send one art uh, sculpture and that was it, we would do a sculpture a publication, a lecture, like a kind of bizarre approach to it. I would be like the immigrant, right? You get more value for your money. And that, I won't say frugalness, but yeah, that kind of economic sustainability has kept us afloat in a sense that it's important. It, yeah, it's enabled us to, to continue doing what we're doing, but also expand the possibilities of what we're doing in a way that, yeah, as of, to avoid the kind of the burnout that we see so much. And, and I can just give a personal example. I think the fact that we started Thousand Dollars at age 30 was helped that really because there was certain maturity. We had certain uh, administrative, again, it sounds unsexy, but it's important things that nobody talks about. Not in the best schools, in Stellerschule and, and Rietfeld and Yale. It's nobody talks about how you survive doing what you want to do in, in, you know, in very brass, mon, brass tax, mundane, meat and potato stuff. And, and for example, I didn't, I was working full time uh, until seven years into Slavs and Tatars on another job because it, I knew that it couldn't cover my uh, my expenses until it, and I wouldn't I wasn't willing to let go of another job until Slavs and Tatars was able to cover those expenses and then I you know then I left uh, but but these are that's I think that's a very important uh, ways of doing that I think that we should yeah I agree we should be more transparent about it more public about it because there's a kind of hushed dirty I mean, it's very very much about art but it's a very european thing right is that europeans don't like to talk about money like americans i mean that's <laughs> well, you guys are much more uncomfortable and, and discreet and much more elegant i have to say but but there's a downside to that elegance <laughs> and maybe 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 just also as a round up um i mean the 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 contribution that we asked you to make for the wall here in the in the building that Fanfara is in as well. Um, it's kind of a funny, like, small, short story behind, because there was originally this work made by Lawrence Wiener, which was then by an unknown person painted over in, I think it was uh, the late 90s or something. And he was asked to make it again, so to put up the exact same work. Um And it's funny. The funny part here is that it said as if it had not. That was that was what the work said. The title of the work was as if it had not, and also in Dutch, I believe, also if it had not. Or yeah, you can correct me. Um, anyway, so and then and then the aftermath of this is that there's almost no documentation of it. There's one little tiny pixelated photo, and that's it. Uh, so we 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 started to work with the series like uh, last year, intending also to look at the importance of how we document or how we publish what we do, how we communicate what we do, or the fact that this is actually the afterlife of the story. So first we had 
Girls Like Us magazine reacting to the work of Wiener by specifically what they did was to uh, turn the sentence into a gender neutral sentence which is more present in, in Dutch so if you're a Dutch native that's more um, apparent um, and then now we have your contribution which includes the Arabic word for he I'm not sure if you want to say something about that. It was first of all great to, I mean, it was it was great to have, hear about girls like us because we've uh, we've also known Jessica for many 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 years, even way before Slaz and others actually. And uh, yeah, we wanted to, uh, in some sense, response to, to respond to their uh, let's say um, degendering it, uh, not by regendering it, but really bringing the issue of faith into the topic again. So this who. Who is the word for he, but it's also often you'll see in kind of Sufi mystical um, calligraphies is the word for he with a capital H, right? For like the transcendent. And then this kind of question of, of course, God being gendered, which is kind of ridiculous. But yeah, the kind of the transcendent or the idea of, of, of language always being in some sense theological language, which is really what interests us is that, you know, if you look at the origins of language, it always goes back to faith in some sense. Whether it's whether it's the printing presses that were first, you know, doing the Bible, or it's even of expressing sort of first things that were being expressed other than sort of rudimentary mm. forensic kind of uh, etymologies, uh, were always were actually tra- scriptural or, or, or spiritual texts in some sense. And so the who again, this kind of mix of a, a very high brow, right? The who is a kind of he God, but in a very stupid way meaning stupid in the sense of transliteration, who in English, meaning just who are you, is like asking the question of like, you know, uh, this existential question that, again, sort of circles back to the origins of, of why people look for uh, faith-based practices and answers, right? It's to understand who they are. And so, yeah, we we wanted to also kind of this a little bit make us a face out of it, like, like who, you know, like the this idea of a kind of a smiley face because... Not again, not just because that's a kind of silly reference, but there's a whole tradition of uh, it's one area of research we've been looking into the past couple of years. It's called Hurufism, and it's it's this amazingly complex science, not science, but like uh, sect, I guess, of Islam and for, starting in the 14th century that basically ascribes letters and uh, and words and in, in language to the facial features. So like. There are seven facial features of a man and woman, and then seven at 14, and they double it because the eyebrows and then the hair and the nostrils. It's all about facial hair and eyes, and it's kind of this crazy, it's just like, it's like wacko Kabbalah for people who are into like facial hair. <laughs> and, uh, and so this was, uh, this was something that we wanted to kind of uh, try to recreate as well. So.